Across history, there have been individuals, movements, religions who've sought to change the world, to bring transformation through a variety of means to change life here and now. Christianity is one of those. It seeks to bring transformation to the world by transforming, changing individual lives. But what's the strategy? What's the the grand strategy for Christianity to to bring about this change of individual lives and and of the world? Is Jesus' strategy to, to utilize spectacularly famous celebrities? Or is it a massive media campaign? Actually, what we see in the scriptures is that Jesus does have a strategy for the world to be changed. But it's by way of strangely ordinary means. Means that we would never expect by which Jesus says, by these, others will see. By this, others will see the beauty of Jesus' saving work. And today in our text, we'll see some of those means, ordinary, regular, unimpressive means that change lives, change the world. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, to 1 Peter chapter 4. So today we'll be in 1 Peter 4, beginning in verse 7. It's in the Bibles near you. You can find it on page 1016. Page 1016. If you're newer to reading the Bible, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in chapter 4. Smaller numbers are the verse numbers. You'll see verse 7, and then we'll follow. I'll mention those other verse numbers. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today. At the back of the room, there's a table. There's a stack of Bibles there. Following the service, don't ask permission. Just go and grab them. We would love for you to take one of those home with you today. This morning, we're continuing our six-week series called Together, the Life of the Church. And we looked at it at 1 Peter 4, beginning verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Today in our passage, we see this main theme, that we're to join in glorifying God together by diligently loving and serving one another. To join in glorifying God together by diligently loving and serving one another. And in our text, we'll see four ways of glorifying God together. Diligent prayer, earnest love, gracious hospitality, and faithful stewardship. So first, we see diligent prayer in verse 7. Peter says in verse 7, the end of all things is near. It's at hand. 
And he's saying that because Jesus Christ has come, he has suffered and died, he has been buried, he's been raised, he's ascended to the Father. We're now in what the the Bible calls the, the end, the last days, between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. So in this last moment, season of God's grand redemptive plan, we're awaiting Christ's promised return. That's the end of all things that Peter's referring to. And Jesus cautioned his disciples that during this end of all things, during these last days, there will be difficulties in this life. Suffering, disease, war, and sometimes opposition to God's people. So it's in these moments that we live, the end of all things is at hand. And so we might wonder, well, then, if this is the end of all things, how are we to live now? How are God's people to live daily in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand? And look at what Peter says, verse 7. Therefore, or in light of, because the end of all things is at hand, because the end is near, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. So in light of the end being near, we seek to live with urgency clarity, with focus. We're to seek to make our days count, to spend them wisely. And we're not to spend our our time in the end of all days uh, trying to figure out what is the day that Jesus is returning. Jesus told us don't do that. So we're not to give our time trying to nail it down, but we're to live as wisely, as focused as we can until he does return. But while we wait, we are not to be a people who are frantic, because the end is near. We're not to be fanatical because the end is near. When our kids were young, we would often fly to visit family, particularly for Christmas. And so we would fly, and and there was never a direct flight. Often we'd find ourselves in, in the massive Atlanta airport. And it seems like every time we flew, one, there would be a very short layover from one flight to the next. And never in our life did we ever land at A7, and they said, oh, your next flight is A8. No, it was always like the furthest terminal with the least amount of time. And so this would be the scene, you know, let's say our daughter was four, our son is one, so we've got her, we've got a stroller for the one-year-old. For some reason, we have our dog as well. We have carry-on bags, and we're rushing to catch the flight. And so numerous times, we'd be running down, you know, uh, uh, the the, the terminal, uh, going as fast as we can, you know, telling our four-year-old, you know, keep up, Uh, you know, we're crying, Uh, the kids are crying too, like we're, we're, you know, we're all crying, we're trying to make our way, hold on to the dog, eventually we're sending the four-year-old ahead, like run ahead and see if they'll stop the flight for us. I mean, it was, it was frantic because the end was near, right? The plane is going to leave, we don't want to stay in the Atlanta airport, and so it's just sort of, sort of frantic run. But friends, that's not how Christians are supposed to live in light of the end of all things. Not frantic about it. But the other alternative is is sort of what I'm going to do this afternoon, Lord willing, which I look forward to, Lord willing, just sluggishly collapsing on the couch, eventually falling asleep, doing as little as possible, sort of in and out of, kind of what I did Thanksgiving evening, the same sort of thing, just a sort of sluggishness to that. In light of the end of all things, we're to do neither of those. Not, Not frantic, Also not sluggish and sleepy, but instead we're called to being self-controlled, level-headed, he says, sober-minded. So we're to be clear-minded, not intoxicated by substances, nor by anything else that the world offers. And this sort of living is to direct our praying. 
says the end is near, so we should pray. Our days are numbered, so we should pray. We don't choose the path of fatalism. Some might say, well, if the end of all things is at hand, why pray? What is there to pray about if the end is almost here? But instead, Peter says, no, in fact, because the end is near, pray all the more. So we want to be alert, focused in our praying. And the Apostle Peter, who writes this letter, was one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples. And he knew what it was like to be told to be diligent and alert and pray, and what it looked like to fail at that. When Jesus, the night he was to be betrayed, he gathered with his disciples, including Peter, in the garden. And the betrayer was just about to come, and Jesus asked his disciples, would you watch and pray with me? Would you stay awake? Pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for me. But what did Peter and his disciples do? They fell asleep. They weren't sober-minded. They weren't alert. So, so Peter, who writes this, he knows what it's like to do this poorly and to do it well. He knew what it's like to fail in being alert. And friends, we want to be a people who are diligent in our praying. And we want to cultivate a life of deliberate praying. So we want to be praying individuals. That is part of our lives. In, in scheduled and unscheduled and spontaneous and planned times, we're praying we join together at times like this, and, and we gather among the things we do in a Sunday gathering. One of those is we pray. Now, in these gatherings, there's typically someone praying for us, but, but as that person is praying, we're praying with them. I hope that you're praying along silently, and then even you might even say, yes, amen, out loud, because you're agreeing in that prayer. So we pray in times like this. We also pray in our small group Bible studies. We call them community groups, and there we have a chance to, to share sometimes even more personal things. Would you pray for me in this? Or would you pray for me in this struggle in my life? And then we have focus times in the life of the church. On the first Sunday of each month, we gather in here in the evening to pray together. So we want to be people who are deliberately praying. And so I wonder if you think about your own life, is your life marked by diligent, deliberate living? Do you want to make the most of the days that you have? Not frantic, but also not sluggish. And as a part of your diligent living, are you giving yourself to clear-minded praying? As we'll see, this paragraph, Peter's writing primarily about how we're to interact together with other believers. So there are an unlimited number of ways we could pray, but one of the ways that we pray is by praying for one another. One of the ways we faithfully love other Christians is to pray for them. And we've seen that last week. One of the ways we bear burdens for one another is to bear that burden in prayer. One of the ways we love others is to cast their burdens on the Lord for them. So we have the opportunity to glorify God through diligent prayer. But then second, we see earnest love in verse 8. Look down at verse 8. He says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, now Peter focuses this love. Notice he says, keep loving one another. So this is written to Christians who are living together in the life of the church. And that's where this love is to be focused. 
Now, Christians are absolutely called to love others, and they're called to love your neighbor as yourself. But here, Peter's, the, the emphasis, the, the weight of this is aimed towards this love towards others in the life of the church. And we're called here to this earnest love, a tenacious, a deep, a sincere a strenuous sort of love. This is not simply an emotional love. It's not simply a, a love that is expressed in words. It's a, it's a good and right thing for Christians to tell other Christians that we love one another. That's a good thing. But in addition to that, this is also love that shows itself. Love that is in action. And this love is to abound among the people of God. As Jesus gave it as a key pointer, John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. Listen to the words of Jesus to his disciples. A new command I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. So Jesus says, this is one of the markers of my people. Not that you say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. No, but that you show it. And one of the key ways we show it is in this sacrificial, earnest love for one another. Now, there are so many ways we can show this earnest love to one another, but, but Peter zeroes in on one form of that in our text. And he says this love covers a multitude of sins. This was a, a proverbial statement likely based on uh, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, that says this, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So we're to love one another earnestly with a sin-covering love. Love one another deeply, strenuously, by choosing to cover the sins of others. Now, the sense of covering a multitude of sins is not that we're covering up or hiding sin. But instead, it's, it's the sense of, I know the sin is there, but I'm choosing to freely forgive it, cover it. I'm choosing to, to freely not address it, to cover it. To choose to overlook a sin. This earnest love forgives quickly and forgives often. It forgives freely and not grudgingly. This is not to say that love sweeps sin under the rug. There is a place in the life of God's people for correction when someone is caught in sin. If you're with us last week, we saw that in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. There is a time when out of love we seek restoration with gentleness. So sometimes a brother or sister in Christ is caught in, trapped in, ongoing, unrepentant sin. And in those situations, it would be unloving of us to cover that sin. In those situations, it is the most loving thing to actually address that sin. So it takes wisdom and discernment to know which is which. Is this a sin to be covered, or is this a sin to be addressed? But across our lives as Christians and in our life together, we will have many more occasions to cover sins than to confront sins. If you were to look back over the, the past year of your life, if you're a Christian, you should see many more occasions where you chose to just willfully cover someone's sin than you confronted them about your sin. And if you look at the last year of your life and you find more confrontation than covering, 
one of two things could be going on. It could be that all the Christians you know are just like really extraordinarily sinful. That's possible. The other alternative, which is actually more likely, is not that they're extraordinary sinners, but is that you're choosing, rather than to cover sin, to confront sin. And that actually the, you're out of balance in how you're thinking about the sins of others. Now, now, what's the source of our love that covers this sin? It is God's love that he has first extended to us. Listen to what the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4, 10 and 11. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Friends, what, what rich two verses for us. This is love. Not that we loved God first, but that out of his great love, the God of the universe sent forth Jesus Christ the Son, that Christ would die for sinners like us to secure this free gift of salvation that we could be brought into the family of God, made children of God. Friends, that is love. When we were the most undeserving of love, God did that. So we see the magnitude of God's love in sending Christ the Son. So for those of us who are Christians, we who have experienced that love and continue to experience that love, now love others with earnest love from that love. Based on his love for us, we love like this. Because Christ has paid for our sins, we can cover some of the sins of others. And if you're not a Christian, we so much want you today to see this love of God. Even before you think about what the text is saying of loving one another, we would ask you, don't think first of loving one another, but first receiving the love of God and this free gift of salvation. This is new to you. We invite you to explore this more with us. Maybe you have questions. I would love to chat with you. I'll be at the door on the way out. Or maybe you came with a friend, classmate. If they're a Christian, ask them. They would love to tell you more. Just know that you're welcome here to explore. Is there really a God who loves like God? this. So, so we know this love of God, and then we forgive, we cover sins because our sins have been covered by Christ. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we have been forgiven by God in Christ, forgiven of an insurmountable debt that all of us have. So it's in light of that that we forgive others. And the Apostle Peter, he knew what it was like to be forgiven, for his sins to be covered in a very personal way. What we call the Last Supper, Jesus gathered with his disciples, including Peter, and there uh, Jesus told them that, that, that they would all scatter, that they wouldn't stand with him. But Peter, who was always the, the, the loudest the proudest, the most courageous sounding, he said, look, all these other guys may scatter, but I will stay with you. In fact, I'll even die for you. But Jesus actually told Peter coming in, actually, Peter, you're going to die me three times. That's exactly what happened. When the pressure was on, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. An utter failure. But one of the most beautiful scenes in the Gospels is after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter, who had denied even knowing him, who'd failed him. Jesus came and 
restored him. Made clear that, Peter, you are fully forgiven. So this one, Peter, who writes of covering sins, he knew what it was like to fail, to sin, and have his sins covered. And so do all of us, friends. All of us have failed, sinned in so many ways, but we've been forgiven so much more by Christ. So therefore, we should, we must go and forgive freely. We've had a a billion-dollar debt credited to us wiped out, and so others do small things, and so we should just wipe it away, wipe it away. We don't even bring it up. We cover over this sin. We cover over that sin. We overlook. We forgive again and again and again. Friends, think often of the debt we owed that was paid by Christ, and that will free and empower us to cover over the sins of others. If you think about how does this play out, like loving and forgiving sin, on the one hand, there has to be a certain level of proximity for that to happen. In order for someone to do something that offends you, you need to cover, you probably have to be in some nearness to them. Probably if you've been in Boston a while, you probably know some Christians in other churches, probably know Christians in other parts of the world. Probably most of us don't have to cover sin very often with a Christian of another church. They live across town or a Christian friend across the country, because we're just not with them enough. Where actually we need to be able to cover sin is in people we're actually living with day to day, week to week. For that's where the offenses come. So what's implied here is that that this is happening in real time among real people who are living with one another. This is in the midst of a local church, people who know the love of God, forgiving one another in the life of the church. This friend, I wonder, Is your life marked by an earnest love? Not for people in theory, but for real people. See it around you. Real people in your church. Is your life marked by a tendency to quickly overlook the failings of others? Or more often, to refuse to forgive others? Do you more often seek to cover sins or expose sins? To find fault in others or freely forgive fault? As I mentioned, the context is within the life of the church. But we can absolutely still take this same love beyond the church. So think about people in your life, family members who are not yet Christians, co-workers, Lab mates, neighbors, housemates who don't know Christ. What would it look like for you to show this same earnest love that covers sins in those relationships? What if you were freely forgiving there as well? A coworker who offends you. And the natural rhythm in your workplace would be to, to plot some subtle payback to seek to get even. And no one would blink an eye if you did that. But what if instead of doing that, you covered over the sin? You forgave freely. What if you have housemates? You live with other people, numerous people there. Someone in the house sins against you. It's your right to confront. What if you covered over sin? Or if you have a sibling like me who doesn't know Christ, who you desire for them to know Christ so much, but 
There's been no evident interest. What if in those relationships we forgave freely, covering over sin? How might God use that to draw their eyes to the beauty, not of us, but of our Savior and King? So we glorify God through earnest love. Third, we also glorify God through gracious hospitality. Verse 9. Gracious hospitality. Look down at verse 9. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality at the time was very significant because there were, there were not hotels like we think of as hotels. That There were um, inns that you could stay in, but often they weren't the safest places that you'd want to be. So the gospel is spreading, so teachers are traveling around the region to, to start churches, and they would need whatever few Christians might be there to show hospitality and house them. You can stay with us for a lengthy period of time. So it would encroach on their comfort, but also be costly to feed these people who are staying with you. Also, as churches were established, they, they didn't initially have buildings like this, so they would meet in someone's home. So someone who would have a home big enough for the group would invite the whole group in. So hospitality was essential in the life of the early church. Now you might think, but okay, is that sort of hospitality really relevant today for us? But I would suggest that hospitality is just as significant today, though it might look slightly different. It's truly profound in this busy, impersonal world that we live in. We're honestly knowing people well enough to actually spend time, in particular, in their home, in their apartment, is truly rare. So friends, this call to show hospitality is for us as well. It's for you. It's for me. And we need to see that Peter doesn't only say show hospitality, but he even goes to our hearts. Look at what he says. Without grumbling. I and mean, we can all imagine, and we've probably been there if we've done much hospitality, it's one thing to do hospitality, it's another thing to do it without grumbling. Because hospitality is costly. There are things that we have to do, and so it's tempting in our hearts to say, yeah, you can come over, but not being so gracious, because we're, we're grumbling that we felt like we needed to clean up a little bit before they came over, perhaps. We grumble because, you know, some of the group, no matter who they are, there's still a few people who just stay too long, right? You're, you're ready. You're, it's the end of the day. You're exhausted. They just won't leave. So in your heart, we grumble. But here the call is to be gracious, not grumble. And here the call is to extend this to one another in the life of the church. So, so how do we do this? Well, friends, you extend it wherever you are, whatever this season of life is for you. So that might be in your studio apartment. It might be in your dorm room. It might be in your single family house. But wherever you are, that is where you're to show hospitality. So it might be that you open up your dorm to those around you. It might be if you can't do any of those, you take someone to a restaurant. That's a fine form of hospitality as well. It's like, would you come along with me? I'd love to, for us to buy dinner or lunch for you. And so we want to be mindful that gracious hospitality can be very simple. Gracious hospitality does not have to be elaborate or fancy. You don't have to even clean your house before people come over. You don't have to clean your dorm room if people come over. You don't have to make a big meal. You can order a pizza. You can have paper plates and invite them to your house. Because what makes Christian hospitality memorable and meaningful is not the high quality of the food, nor the high cost of the dishes that you eat off of. No, it's the act of welcoming, of sharing of showing tangible love and inviting people in your house and saying through your actions, you are valuable to me.
me. I care about you. That's what hospitality is about. We also have a chance to show hospitality, even in our gathering like this. If this is your church, every Sunday, we have a chance to show hospitality. And it can be helpful to think of this gathering like you would think of people coming to your house. If people came to your house, you know, you make sure you know, they could find their way in. You turn the, the light on. If it's a night, so they could find their way. They come in, you say, okay, here's the couch, here's the dining room table, here's the kitchen table, whatever that is, here's the restroom. You just want to point them around. And so as people come here, friends, if this is your church, we want to be people who welcome people. We'll inconvenience ourselves for them. Like, here, I want you to have this good seat. This one's two degrees warmer than that one. So, so we're freezing to death in the wintertime, so here's the warmest spot in the building. We'd love for you to take that spot. To help people, if you see someone who maybe just has a look on their face like they're not sure where to go, that you want to say, hey, are you looking for something? Be glad to help you. To show hospitality as we gather. We also, as a church, have the chance to show hospitality to the nations as they come to our city. So we have English classes for internationals, but so many come here. Just to help serve in a really fundamental way to say, we're glad that you're here. And if English is a challenge, we'd love to help you grow in that if you'd like. And friends, related to that, one of the richest forms of hospitality we have the opportunity for as Americans is to invite internationals into our homes. Statistics sadly show again and again the vast majority of internationals who come to the U.S. so much want to eat, eat and, and, and be in someone's home who is a resident and rarely get the chance. So what a simple opportunity to say, Hi, we'd love for you to come to our house. Love for you to come to my dorm room. Yeah, come to my studio apartment. There's not much room here, but we'd love to have you. As a church, we also have a chance to to love those in our city who struggle with homelessness. So pre-COVID, Lord willing, uh, post-COVID, we have a meal downstairs, which on the one hand provides a meal, but it's more than that. It's also saying, we want to show hospitality. Come and sit at a table with us. We want to show care. You are valuable through that. So in your life, what are some ways that you could show hospitality? Think through your particular season of life. Most of you do this so graciously and so well. Many of you have in the past hosted community groups at great cost. I mean, community groups, that come around every week and you open your home. Some of you eagerly say, look, if, if, if a gathering of the church needs our house, you're welcome to it. If you need our little yard, you're welcome to it. So, so many of you do this again and again. And again, this text is focused towards showing hospitality towards one another, but this too can be leveraged beyond the life of the church. Think about coworkers, other students who don't know Christ. There too, hospitality is rich and powerful. So how might you, if you live in the dorms, leverage your room where your room is the most welcoming one on the floor? So you have coffee, free coffee, ready in your room. You've got some leftover frozen pizza. Like, hey, it's, anybody wants to come, you can have frozen pizza. You're saying, welcome. You are welcome here. To think about coworkers. What if you said to some coworkers, you know, we'd love to invite you over to our house. Maybe there's a new coworker on your team. I'd love to have you over. A neighbor. 
So many opportunities that we get to welcome people in, communicate to them. We think they're valuable. And who knows how God might use a simple dinner in your dorm room or in your apartment by which someone might look back one day and one of the seeds sown that led to them knowing Christ was your gracious hospitality. So it's just to glorify God through that. And then fourth, we see faithful stewardship. Faithful stewardship in verse 10 and 11. We see in the text that every Christian is given at least one spiritual gift. Verse 10, as each has received a gift. And we see in the New Testament that God gives these spiritual gifts to every Christian. What these gifts are are our abilities empowered by the Spirit and used in the life and ministry of the church. There are multiple lists in the New Testament of these gifts, but we don't think there's an, an exhaustive list out there. But there's a variety of these gifts. Now, talents are certainly to be leveraged for the glory of God wherever possible. But here, these are special empowerments that God gives to his people. And because these gifts are given by God, they are received by us. Therefore, we are not owners of these gifts. Very importantly, we don't own them. We are caretakers of them stewards of them. So they're not ours to do with as we wish, but we're to do with them as God intends. And what is involved in faithful stewardship, verse 10, he says, use it. Use the gift that you have and use it for what? To serve one another. Friends, these gifts are to be used, not simply to be identified, not simply to be analyzed and accumulated, but they are to be utilized. And in this, we serve others. Serve others in the life of the church. The Apostle Peter had seen what service looked like up close and personal. In that last supper, as they were gathered together, Jesus, their teacher, their Savior, lowered himself to wash their feet. So stunning that Peter tried to argue against it. He tried to stop him. Peter had seen in Jesus a heart of service. And friends, that's, that's the impulse that's to fuel us with, as we utilize these gifts, is a heart of service to others. The Savior and King calls us and empowers us into this service. Imagine if as you came in today, you came to every seat, and in every seat there was a gift for each one of us. And in the gift was an instrument, a musical instrument different all around the room, and with the gift also came the skill, the ability to play it well. Now, they're different ones, right? So somebody has a violin in the back, there's a trumpet over here, a clarinet, in the front row, I got a triangle. I mean, so there are all these different instruments with skill so that together we could play as a symphony beautiful music. That's how God gives these gifts. He gives the gifts and he gives the power so that together we sing a beautiful song. But these instruments only make sense, only truly make the right music when we're playing together. I mean, if I just kind of went walking down the street with my triangle, I suppose you could play a song, but it wouldn't be the most impressive song. No offense if you were the triangle player. Or if you play the bass drum. I mean, I love the sound of a bass drum, but there's only so much you can do alone with the bass drum. But combining those together with all these different instruments, together, not in isolation, we play this beautiful song. 
This is what God intends for these gifts. These gifts are not for us, but for the church. Now, Peter divides these gifts into two broad categories. He calls some, he says, the one who speaks, referring to what we might say are speaking gifts. This would include teaching the scriptures, preaching, sharing the gospel with others. And then he says the one who serves. This would be a, a category of serving gifts. This would include a variety of ways. We would serve others, encourage others in the life of the church. But notice how Peter says these are empowered. Verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. So he's saying God empowers those who speak. He doesn't mean that that we are, are speaking with the same authority that Peter the apostle wrote, but that God is at work through his people as we teach his word. And he says, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And friends, this is such a helpful and important way to, to view the giving of these gifts and how we utilize them. Friend, God gives you gifts and he will empower you to use them. He will strengthen you for the service that he calls you to. So we're not called to sort of this self-reliant work. That's not sufficient But the fact is we serve with the strength that he gives. Now, we will get tired. Service is tiring, sometimes even exhausting. But when God gifts his people and he strengthens us for it, friend, as we serve, even at exhaustion, there is a rightness to that. There's a goodness to exercising the gift God has given you for the good of others. And in that, we'll find a satisfaction even a meaning of being used for the glory of God. Now, these gifts are are focused, not for the solitary Christian, but in our life together as a church. Sometimes Christians find out what their spiritual gifts are, and they sort of shop around trying to find just the right spot to plug in with their gift. So it'd be be like a musician who who plays the violin, and he visits this band and that band and this symphony. I'm not going to join this one, but never quite finds a place to play. So he never actually plays the violin. Friends, that's not how we're to view these spiritual gifts. But it is to find a church that that preaches the gospel and say, look, this is what I bring. I'm bringing my triangle, but I'm going to join this symphony. I'm going to play with all my heart the gifts that God has given to me. And that's what we do together in the life of the church. So, friend, if you're a Christian, bring your gift to be used in the life of the church. Now, you might say, well, I don't know what my gift is. That's okay. Most of us don't, especially initially. So what we do initially is simply serve. Start serving the life of the church. Many areas in the life of the church don't require any kind of gifting, simply just willingness. But then as you serve in a variety of ways over the years, sometimes you discern, I'm not gifted in this area. So you serve, but you find one that you're not particularly enjoying it, and sometimes that others aren't enjoying your service, right? And they're like, thank you, but let's try something else. That's okay to discern those things. But in time, you also find an area that, one, you find some enjoyment in, and others seem to be helped by it. And when that happens, you're you're getting close to discerning, yeah, this is an area that I'm gifted in. This is my instrument to play in the life of the church. So that's what we want to do as we grow in Christ. Now, these gifts are to to then shape us in our uh, service of one another. But, but friends, this too can turn outward. Friend, what if you were servant-hearted on your dorm floor? If you were looking for ways to serve others, what about in your workplace? What if when something needed to be done, you weren't the one like, look, uh, are you going to volunteer? 
If you're like, I, I could do that. What if you're the one eager to serve? What about if you have housemates? Eager to serve. Neighbors. You share a driveway. Something needs to be done. Are you the one that says, I could do that? Or is it like the Cold War? I'm going to wait him out. He'll have to do it. She'll have to do it first. Eager to serve. And again, another way that we draw the eye of others to the beauty of Christ. And Peter concludes verse 11 by the goal of all of this. Look at verse 11 at the end. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is our goal, that God would be glorified, that we'd make much of God, none of ourselves, but of him. And we have the chance to do this day in and day out. through These really ordinary practices, hospitality, service, love, forgiveness. So we pray and we love, we forgive, we welcome, we serve together across generations and across ethnicity, across economics and across education together. And as we do that, imperfect as we are, friend, God will be glorified in that. God will be glorified in you and in us together. And together we'll play a song, not perfectly, but a beautiful song of the grace of God, the glory of our God. So let's give ourselves to that. Play with the instrument, the gift that God has given you. And together, God will work. As a means of response today, there are several ways to respond. One of those is the connection card. Maybe there's some ways that we could pray for you. Maybe you want to know more about Christianity. You can note that on the card. Just a moment, we'll receive the offering. The baskets will go by. You can drop it there. If you're watching online, please fill out that connection form there as well. We'd love to know how we could serve you. We're going to bow our heads now for a time of silent praying. Then I'll lead us in praying together, and then we'll sing as a means of response. Let's bow our heads together.